Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai. And I'm Molly Keck. And I'm Wizzy Brown. And we are with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension through the Department of Entomology. And this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. We're back for part two of our insect turf series with Dr. Becky Bowling. And last time we were talking about probably the top two insects that those of us as entomologists or turf specialists get calls about, but also what most people are more aware of as being an actual issue in their turf. And so this week we're going to talk about the next three or so, and these are, correct me if I'm wrong, but these are uh, moths, different types of moths and caterpillars, and maybe some things that a, a regular homeowner, um, even someone like myself, may not necessarily realize is an issue in our turf. Um, and so I'm kind of interested to, to hear about what kind of damage they do um, and what I should be looking for because I really only think about grubs and chinch bugs. I really don't think about those moths or caterpillars that could actually be eating my lawn. So as we move on to the leps, as Erfan says, the lepidopteras. So yeah, that's what that's what us cool kids call them, the leps on the street. That's what we call them on the turf. So, so we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about <laughs> three main ones that I see uh, as turf grass pests here in Texas. Um, all three are going to not, not really produce big, glorious butterflies. They more produce like, not to diminish moths in any way, but um, maybe not very exciting uh, to look at moths. <laughs> You, you can say it. We all know. You're okay to kill. Is what you you're can say they're yes. they're drab yeah. brown. Yeah. They're moths. not beautiful, so we don't we don't we don't care care for them as much. <laughs> In general, if it's an ugly caterpillar, it's gonna grow up to be an ugly moth. They don't they don't they're not like ugly ducks. Yes. yes, and and just you know in alignment with what Molly just said, one of the descriptions for one of these caterpillars, which is the cutworm, um, that I found on an AgriLife website, is dingy gray, black, and smooth skinned. <laughs> so I particularly like dingy as it's the description. What these look like. <laughs> so, um, so there's kind of three big ones that we've got and there's multiple species on each of these, but we have the army worms, sod webworm, and cutworms. Um, fall armyworms are the ones that I probably hear most about from people. Um, however, in South Texas, they will hear a little bit more about sod webworms a lot of times. And then cutworms, I don't hear about as much in lawns, but we do see them occasionally and, and damage is gonna be kind of similar across the board with all three of these um, because they're gonna have chewing mouth parts and so, and they're gonna be foliar feeding. And so, whereas chinch bugs and grubs, we're gonna see mostly in the thatch or the roots, these are gonna be insects that we're gonna see out kind of partying in the turf. Um, although all three of them tend to prefer feeding at night and so may not be as easy to scout for them during the day. Um, I will definitely see armyworms out in the middle of the day feeding for sure, but some of the others, um, maybe not quite as much. Um, so armyworms, we have four common armyworms in Texas that are kind of pest, have our pest problems that I'm aware of. We have the fall armyworm, which is the big one that we talk about a lot in turf. We have the yellow striped armyworm, the beet armyworm, and the true armyworm. And so again, fall armyworm is, is probably the, the most, the one we most commonly associate with turf or lawn damage. Um, and 
In terms of appearance for these, um, I like to say that they kind of are wearing their camos. And so their color scheme is gonna be kind of a brown, gray, green. Sometimes they'll have a little bit of a more yellow green appearance, but they tend to be almost like they're wearing camouflage because they're in the army. Um, <laughs> dingy? <laughs> yes, they're dingy camos. Um, fall armyworms are gonna have a distinctive inverted Y um, in between their eyes on their face. And so that's one thing that we use to identify them. Uh, they also have stripes that, uh, two, uh, stripes that run the length of their body. And then they also have these, I think they're kind of cute little four little distinctive black dots on their bottoms that, that are also kind of helpful in identifying them. Um, the adults are going to be about probably an inch in length. Sometimes they may get about an inch and a quarter. Um, um I'm sorry, the, mature larvae. The adult moths are going to have a wingspan of about an inch and a half. And they're not going to be particularly flashy. Again, kind of gray-brown, um, not very exciting moths. Um, so um, fall armyworms have six instar stages, and they do like 93% of their feeding or something um, in the, like the last two stages. And so what this means is that sometimes uh, the, the feeding early on is kind of hard to detect and hard to identify. And they go across these stages, um, eggs to full-grown larvae in just two to three weeks. So there's, it's happening very quickly, um, which means once they kind of reach those final stages, they can really decimate a yard in a, a fairly short amount of time. And so th this is one where we definitely want to be judicious in scouting and we want to be um, pretty quick to act if we are seeing an infestation. Um, these tend to be, um, have like outbreak years, right? Where we see years where they're just like super bad. Um, and I, I, I know that like probably two years ago, we had a year that was pretty bad where we were seeing them everywhere at the turf facility in College Station. I assume that that extended to other parts of the state as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely down in San Antonio. And I, and I, and people that I knew in like Nacogdoches and East Texas. So I think they were just statewide bad that year. I saw them out and about last year, you know, like taking strolls and stuff, but I didn't see them nearly as um, <laughs> problematic in turf as I did the, the year before. So am I right that they are fall army worms, but they have several generations. So by fall, that's when the population's the highest. Yes. So if they come out strong in spring, then there's more in the summer and then there's even more in the fall time, right? Yes, that's my understanding as well. And yeah, they can have multiple generations per year. And yeah, that kind of builds. And, and so we will notice them more in late summer and fall, but that doesn't mean we won't see them at other times of the year. And, and yeah, definitely milder winters are going to make for those outbreak years that we may see. Um, fall armyworms are going to be attracted to young, lush turf. And so if you have sites that are relatively new, relatively recently established. Those are sites you may want to monitor more closely um, because they may be more attractive. And um, we also see sometimes preferential feeding. So zoysia grasses, for example, are often not as palatable to some of our Lepidoptera pests as, as Bermuda or St. Augustine might be. Um, initial fall armyworm damage, a lot of times what we may see first is going to be almost like translucent tips on the leaves where they're going in and kind of scraping all the good stuff off of the youngest part of the leaf. And then once they really become active, they'll just kind of feed down to the, to the ground. So, so is this, is this a pest that within a season they can cause devastation? So you should try and control them within season, or is it again, something that, you know, you see it maybe next year, try and do something about it. So this is one that I would suggest that you treat in season because these are 
such voracious eaters and they'll damage things fairly quickly. Now, a couple of things they will kind of add to this. One is that in our warm season turf grasses, um, we typically will not see, while we may see a significant damage, these typically cannot do enough damage to kill the turf. And so they'll feed down a lot of that above ground vegetation, but our turf typically is able to come back through stolons or rhizomes and recover over time. Unfortunately, they do a lot of this damage right at the end of the season where the turf grass is not able to, to do that recovery uh, prior to going into the winter months and into dormancy. And so, you know, one thing that we may see is a lot of weeds that come up in these areas where the soil is exposed and we don't have good turf protection, that may be something that we have to address. Um, and so you do have the option if, if, you're, if you're willing to kind of be patient, you do have the option of, of not treating, knowing that there could be really significant visible damage, but that it shouldn't kill the turf grass. Um, but it is something where, where I would say you may need to be more reactive than maybe with, with grubs. Um, just, just because of how quickly that damage can appear. We will, in terms of scouting, typically where we might see damage appear first is gonna be next to someplace where they can lay their eggs. So they can lay their eggs on things like stop signs, benches, hard surfaces. And so, um, you know, you can, and you can typically see those eggs, they're pretty visible. And so you'll typically see initial damage kind of near that, but also these can move, they can move and they can move fairly quickly. So, um, you know, we like to say, oh, it'll start here, but maybe not. Maybe they'll just go to right to the neighbor's yard. That's new and lush. So isn't that what, how they get their name army worm? Cause they march and they just move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so that's a big thing to think about is for these, you may have to really think about turf recovery, how you can support turf recovery after damage has occurred um, through appropriate management practices. And then, you know, you can definitely uh, take steps to um, control some of the weeds that come up, but like something to keep in mind is that, for example, pre-emergence herbicides that we may apply in the spring could interfere with recovery of the turf grass. And so that's something where, you know, we may want to, if we have significant fall armyworm damage from the previous fall, we may skip the pre-emergent in those areas in the early spring to really promote recovery. Um, and, and then we can apply a new pre-emergent later in the year. Okay. Then I just have our stock webworms and cutworms, some more dingy worms, caterpillars to talk about. <laughs> Sod webworms, um, we see especially problematic in lawn grasses. St. Augustine in particular can be very vulnerable to sod webworms. Um, these are going to have a lot of times a gray to tan color, but when they feed on fresh turf, they, they, their bodies are translucent enough that they can take on kind of a lighter green appearance as a function of feeding so much on that turf because it just fills up their guts and, <laughs> and so then they look green. That's like my son and when he eats a lot yes, of blueberries. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so these larvae can reach about three quarters of an inch to an inch in length. They're going to look different from fall armyworms. Their, their heads are like very small. They're not going to have the stripes on the length of their body. They are going to be kind of spotted down the length of their body. I also think that they, they look at least visibly more segmented just when you look at them. I don't think they actually are, um, but I just feel like because they don't have the stripes and the dark color, it's just kind of, um, that's, that's kind of the appearance that they have. The adults are fairly small. I think they have a wingspan of about three quarters of an inch. And when they're resting, they have a pretty defined triangular shape. And, um, you know, one way that you can spot the adults is around dusk, they tend to fly just above the turf in a uh, zigzag pattern, 
that I guess, I don't know if they, they look maybe like they're inebriated or maybe they just look like they're flying serpentine, but it's a pretty, pretty distinctive flight pattern um, to help identify them. But these are not the same things that when people mow the lawn, they see flying out from in front of the lawnmower. Because I get that question all the time. Completely different. And do these things, like, you know, you leave your porch lights on at night and there are always going to be moths there. These aren't necessarily those as well. Because, you you know, we're saying they're drab and boring, but there's lots of drab and boring moths too. Right. Most moths are drab, drab and boring because that's how they survive. Right? They, they don't want to be, they don't want to stand out. Yeah. Again, similar to our grubs, um, we have probably more species that are not harming our turf than we do species that are harming our turf. So we don't want to be um, too reactive. Other things to kind of think about. So when it comes to damage, damage may start off looking a little different than the fall armyworms. So the fall armyworms feed in like a big group. And so there tends to be a really defined kind of barrier of where they've done damage and where they haven't. Sod webworms, we may start off initially seeing almost like little clumps um, that can resemble certain diseases. And then over time, one thing that we may see that's kind of interesting with these is that affected areas almost look like they've been mowed lower, like there's mowing injury um, to that turf than areas that are non-effective. And so if you look at pictures, it can, it can literally look like somebody just didn't know what they were doing or they half they half mow the lawn. And so that's one thing that you can look for. And again, these, these tend to be active at night. So that can be challenging from a scouting standpoint. And then as we go up on the leaves of those affected areas of turf, we'll see notches in the blade from where, where they've been chopping and feeding. So how would I be able to tell that damage from just my son doing his normal mowing of the grass? <laughs> so again, one of those things is going to be notches in the leaf blades. But the big thing that we use sometimes to identify some of these larval insects that may hide from us during the day is going to be the soapy flush. Not, not to be confused with the coffee flush, right? This one's a, a soapy flush. Yeah, yeah. Very different. Do not use your coffee can for this. No, they're... <laughs> <laughs> very different, very different. This is a bigger setup. So usually what I do is I take like a big five gallon bucket and I mix up about three gallons of solution. So I have solution, like we're mixing up a real, something real fancy. Nice. So let me share the, the recipe with you guys. Oh yeah. So about, uh, for every one gallon of water that you add, it's going to be one tablespoon of something like liquid dish soap or Dawn. And a lot of times the, the citrus scented ones sometimes can be more effective because they're more irritating. And so, um, so one to one, I usually mix up three gallons worth of solution. You can pour this over about a, a, about a yard um, in terms of area. And that can help agitate and flush up some of these insects that may be hiding from you. And so if you're not sure whether or not you're seeing damage from your caterpillars versus your son mowing the lawn, um, that would be one thing is, is we definitely want to be able to see those insects right before we make any decisions about management at all. And so that, that's one way that we can kind of coax them out. Now, they do have this name, sod webworm. So this is, and you guys have probably gotten similar questions. Oh, I'm seeing webs in my turf. Does this mean that I have sod webworm and I need to treat? So a couple of things. Uh, one, we, we typically are only going to see those webs in, in really low mode turf. They're usually not super visible in lawn scenarios. We tend to see them more when the turf is at an inch or lower. Two, we have many spiders that build webs in lawns that are not harmful. In fact, they are beneficial. And so we definitely don't wanna go off the fact that we're seeing webs as, as a, a justification for making any treatment decisions. Now, if you're an arachnophobe, then that's you know your decision. But 
we don't, certainly don't want to encourage people to kill, you know, beneficial predatory spiders in their lawn because they're, you know, predators and they're going to help uh, suppress some other pests in the, in the lawn. So management in that situation would, for the most part, be unnecessary. But now people are probably freaking out thinking there are spiders all over their lawns. Well, um, let me just tell you, the few times I've done a soapy flush in my own yard, I've brought up more spiders than, I, than anything else. There's way more there <laughs> so, than you even realize. So- <laughs> That should have been a disclaimer you added before telling people to do a soapy flush that you might find things that you did not know were there or that you didn't want there, but they're not bad and it's okay. They're going to go back in the soil and mind their own business and and help uh, create a nice, healthy environment for you. But now they're going to be angry because you did the soapy flush. Yeah, (laughs) right. Now they might come after you. (laughs) In that case, you're going to need some army worms to help you out. Yep. Our last uh, caterpillar is gonna, again going to be a cutworm, and that's the one that is described as dingy, dingy gray brown and smooth skinned, <laughs> and around uh, around an inch to an inch and a half in length. Um, again, pretty active at night. They tend to hide during the day under debris or in the turf where where they're not going to be um, exposed to light. Um, if we kind of irritate these, they curl into a C shape. That's pretty distinctive. All of these, all three of these, again, they're all foliar feeding. They're all going to be munching on the leaves. We're, all, we're going to see dim, uh, visible damage to the foliage. We're going to be able to see these insects if we do enough digging or we do enough provocation to bring them up. Um, and, and so it's not, there's not going to be a lot of mystery around this if we do a little bit of work to find them. In terms of, of control, a lot of different options. What are you guys, what are your thoughts about BT? in this group? I I think if it's utilized properly, then it can actually work. But this is one of those where people need to read and follow the labeled instructions, making sure they're getting the correct type of BT and that they are getting good coverage because it does have to be consumed and all that good stuff. Yeah. And I think it probably would work better against the fall armyworm because they you see the damage as they're older, but they're consuming more at that time. Whereas a lot of these other guys as they develop and they're in their later instars, they're not feeding as rapidly or as much. So they're not going to consume enough to get sick and die from it. What is BT and kind of how does it work? Kind of what is the, what is that? BT stands for Bacillus thuringiensis, I believe is the scientific name. And my understanding is that essentially it's, it's an organic option in particular with, with some of these species where as they consume it, Um, the insects consume it, essentially crystals form inside their gut that perforate their gut. And so it's a little gruesome, but it's supposed to be kind of a natural alternative to some of our other chemical insecticides. And it's a terrible way to die. So you feel great about it. (laughs) Yeah. I think they call it a leaky gut. I mean, it actually punches holes in their gut and it's like a toxin that's produced by this bacteria, Bacillus thuringiensis, which is naturally occurring in soil. So they've just isolated it into an insecticide. So it's like those old potato chips that they used to have with that oleo, whatever, the the leaky gut thing. You guys remember that? Yes, yes. Yes, the Doritos Wow, or I probably shouldn't mention brand names on here, but yeah, that's... (laughs) already mentioned Dawn and McDonald's coffee, so let's just hope money starts coming our way. Um, so yeah, so I guess what I would just, and I'm about to go through a whole uh, little list of other thoughts that I have about protecting beneficials, but one of the things I would definitely say about these Lepidoptera is, is just keep in mind that the insecticides that we would use to control these, 
you know, if they're harming these caterpillars, they can also harm beneficial caterpillars and other insects. And so um, we do want to be really mindful of that before we choose any product. Um, you know, we've talked about this earlier, but in addition to making sure we've properly identified the problem, in addition to making sure that chemical control is warranted in the first place, timing again is going to be really important and making sure that that we're not putting out a product just to pat ourselves on the back and say we did something um, when when that product is not actually going to help us at all because the, the timing's not right or the the active ingredients not right or whatever so a lot of different things that kind of go into this decision process and and along these lines, I had some recommendations for homeowners as it relates to protecting beneficials um, from, a, from a lawn management standpoint. So the first is that we didn't talk about a lot of these today, but there are some other things that can show up in the yard that we don't like that aren't necessarily turf pests, but they're pests for us. Things like fleas, ticks, chiggers, um, fire ants. Um, regular and appropriate mowing practices at an appropriate height can be really beneficial in kind of reducing the pressure of some of those insects in our landscape. We also see there are some other insect pests that we did not talk about today, like Bermuda grass mites, scale, certain mealy bugs that we will occasionally see in turf. And a lot of times we may see these more commonly associated with sickly turf or turf that maybe is experiencing nutrient deficiencies or some other type of stress that's making them more susceptible to some of these insects. And that can be true for many turf diseases as well. And so anytime we have a, an insect infestation, one question we want to ask ourselves is, is there something I need to adjust about the way that I'm managing this lawn that's making it more susceptible to whatever this, this pest is? And, and can I start with that first? before I do a pesticide treatment. Um, because there are big changes that we can make just changing the way we mow, the way we irrigate, um, the, the way we fertilize that can have really significant impacts on, on the health of our lawns and the pressure of, of certain pests that like to visit them. When we have pest infestations of any kind, we wanna make sure that we bag and remove lawn clippings to keep from dispersing that problem. Also taking a little time to remove a spark plug from your mower, turn it on its side and clean the deck out so you can prevent things from caking to that deck that can be spread across to other parts of your yard that are healthy. And so this is true again for any pests, whether it's insects, weeds, disease, whatever it is. If we've got a problem, keep your equipment clean. When you say remove, that doesn't mean throw it into the compost pile that's right next to your lawn. Right. <laughs> Very good point. Right. We want to, we want to treat it like a, it's, it's, it's like biohazard material kind of for our yard, right? It's contaminated material. You mean like bag it and either solarize it or, or trash it. Yeah. It's like dirty diapers. Right. Right. right yeah. Another thing to think about is that we have many weeds that proliferate in turf grass lawns that pollinators love. Okay. Um, a lot of our cloverers, slender aster, um, dandelion. And so we want to be really mindful of that, um, that we're making insecticide applications on our turf grass areas, especially if we have flowering weed, weeds present, we increase the likelihood of harming pollinators in that turf system. And so a couple things um, to kind of think about is one, um, you know, if, if you are a person that, that is going to um, rely on certain chemical control practices to manage insect pests in your yard, then taking those extra steps also to reduce flowering weeds in your turf grass systems as well. 
You can mow prior, just prior to uh, making insecticide applications to remove flowers. Um, that can be really beneficial in making sure that, that there's not insecticides on those flowers that pollinators are landing on. So you just move, pull the flowers out of the equation completely. Um, avoid insecticides. Um, you know, when you're when you're really close to your landscape bed areas, a lot of times um, we may see recommendations that you have a two to three foot kind of buffer between your turf grass lawn and your flowering landscape beds, because even though you may feel like, oh, my, my insecticide's not going on these flowering plants, we see with some of these systemic neonicotinoids, some of these insecticides, that they can be taken up by plant roots and then moved into the flowers. And so if there's any intermingling of roots in the soil, we may accidentally be applying insecticides to our flowering plants that way. And so that's something to be really mindful of. Um, there's been a big push, you know, to, to really explore alternatives to neonicotinoids. And, and I'll let you guys speak on that more, maybe if you want to, but, um, you know, looking for alternatives to some of these products that we know can be harmful to, to bees and to some of our other pollinators um, and just being really mindful of, of, the risk that anything we use poses to those those insects. Very important, obviously. Mm -hmm. The the label, the insecticide label, is actual federal law, and there's an environmental hazard section that will say things about how it might impact pollinators and any restrictions on how you can apply that pesticide uh, in which it might adversely affect some of those pollinators. With a lot of those, there's a class you mentioned, neonicotinoids, which includes an active ingredient, imidacloprid, uh, is probably the most common one you might find. Uh, your local, you know, your local um, source. And that one will usually say some of the environmental hazards that you cannot apply it when plants are in bloom. And the reason is not just because of trying to make your life difficult, but because that could potentially decimate a lot of pollinators in your area. So very important to make sure you follow that label. And again, you know, I think Becky, you really, you know, you hit the nail on the head is only apply those insecticides when really needed, right? Because even if you're not applying it, when there's flowers in bloom, it's going to have some potential other non-target impacts, some impacts on other beneficial insects, even something like BT that needs to be consumed by a larva. If that larva is potentially not your target, it could also potentially have an impact on it. So um, unfortunately, when these, these specific chemicals are found, they don't say like, hey, I only kill sod webworms or like, hey, you want to kill armyworms? I'm your chemical, right? Like they're kind of um, relatively broad uh, in their impact, depending on the insecticide. Some are a lot more broad than others. And if you look at that label, the longer the list of pests and the more diverse those pests are, the more likely it is to be a broad spectrum insecticide, meaning that it kills a lot of things, most likely including a lot of beneficial insects. I would just add to this and say that, and I think you, you, just alluded to this in a, in a good way. And it, it's just because something is natural or just because something is organic as it relates to some of this pest control stuff, it does not mean that we shouldn't still treat it with the same respect as a synthetic product, right? That, that we have still just as much potential, mm -hmm. you know, like Erfan said, if it, if it works on this thing, it probably could also work on these other things that I don't want to harm. And so um, regardless of whether you're working with organic 
or synthetic products, you always want to read and follow the label. You always want to do your due diligence to understand what the potential implications of using that product are. Um, you know, I would say as somebody that's worked a lot in turf, people tend to compartmentalize in their mind that turf is its own thing and what they do in turf is not going to affect what's happening in the rest of their landscape. And, and we see time and time again that that's not true. And so, so really making sure that you think of your turf grass lawns as being part of a much bigger system, both within the context of your own property and beyond. And, and so doing everything you can to avoid over applying products that, that you may not need consult your agri-life expert, whether it's your county agent or your program specialist or your extension specialist or whoever your expert is of choice um, to get that input if you're, if you're not sure and, and just always be really conscientious. Signing off, we're on Bugs by the Yard. I'm Molly Keck. Airfond Vafai. And I'm Wizzy Brown. And our guest speaker. She's Becky Grubbs. She's Becky Grubbs. Absolutely. Thanks again for joining us. And this is Texas A&M AgriLife Extension through the Department of Entomology. Thank you so much for tuning in.